Welcome to the Nehemiah Collective Podcast, where we tell the stories of men and women embodying the beautiful future God has for the church and giving us back a holy imagination for all that's possible. In this episode, my conversation is with Sarah Billups. Sarah is a writer with a book coming out in the next year called Orphan Believers. She's a wife, a friend, a mother, and a thoughtful soul who looks to bring all that she encounters home to who Jesus is. No matter what they've gone through, her heart is to help them see that in Jesus, they have a place to call home. So let's dive in. How'd you get here? What And where is here? What are you about to do? How you grew up? Yeah, I have written for most of my life, but stopped writing for a while in my 30s when I had family and started grad school, really worked on a career and didn't really have anything to say until 2016 when I had a fair amount of things to say about how Christianity interacts with culture and politics and and what's going on in the church. Coming up, I was raised in a Rust Belt town in Indiana called Fort Wayne with a dad that converted to Christianity in the 70s from Judaism. So we had an interesting kind of insider-outsider framework in the church we were a little different. And that was a point of distinction, a point of otherness that my parents experienced that impacted me. But the other big theme in my childhood, like a lot of kids, was was the fear of the end times, like being told that the world would probably end yeah, before I had a family or started life was a really sick and heavy. <laughs> and so really had grappled with that for a while and have written about some of those themes in in Orphaned Believers, the book that I'm working on. So that's something when you're not ready to talk about something until you are. And it just felt like a topic I just couldn't quite get my mind around. And then I was ready. So that's been cool. So I met my husband, Drew. I went to Taylor University in a speck of a town in Indiana called Upland, where there's this, not even a real traffic light. There's like a blinking light and a famous shop. That's amazing. But we met when, we met when I was 18 and, um, we were really involved in a church in Indiana, in Muncie, Indiana, close to our college. That was, led by a pastor that came up in the Jesus movement. It was very rooted in, it wasn't especially charismatic, but it was certainly rooted in prayer. Practicing gifts of the Spirit was welcome. It was Sunday night prayer meetings lasting for hours. It was fairly experiential. We were all young and figuring it out. So that church was quite formative for me in my 20s. Because of that time, there was a strong community of folks that formed friendships. We decided to come out to Seattle together to experience co-housing and intentional community. And that was back in the early 2000s when Shane Claiborne was talking a lot about co-housing and living in the city and was during the missional church movement. So we were certainly a part of that wave. Um, And that was 17 years ago, which is wild. We landed at a Presbyterian church, heavy on liturgy, um, the first weekend that we moved to Seattle. And um, I've been there ever since. So the same congregation for almost 20 years now. And I'm a deacon these days and really value meeting and praying with folks, like meeting practical needs, like that kind of daily work. But the church that we get vibe, that's very good for introverts or like Sufjan Stevens fans or... <laughs> that's a very specific way to... It's very bucketed and like pensive, you know, just like pensive sort of thoughtful people, really big hearted people with our head down um, and just trying to do good work mostly out of the spotlight. So interestingly, when I landed in Seattle, began to develop two different lives pretty quickly. The city felt pretty hostile towards 
Christians in a way that was surprising. I've since unpacked a lot of that and connected it, not to be tangential, Michael, but connected a lot of that to the influence of Mars Hill and oh, Mark Driscoll yeah. in Seattle during those days. So that's a whole other topic that's been interesting to experience. Sure. But because of sensing some some sort of hostility or probably much of that imagined, but still began a little bit of a separate life where I'd have a Sunday, sort of Sunday church life. And then the rest of the week, walk downtown a mile to my job at a small press wearing like mm. vintage dresses and getting really good coffee. So it just felt truncated for a long time. But then since that time, after taking a little while, specifically in about four or five years ago, began to not be able to handle the management of two identities and mm-hmm. began to shed that a little bit after walking in a spiritual desert for a while where a lot of people we loved began to identify as spiritual but not religious, which was, I think that's what folks said back in the 2000s before saying maybe deconstruction or other words, but we yeah. get a lot of SBNRs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so just walking through a season of sort of loneliness, confusion, not growing in my faith, not flourishing, and doing that in a new place, it took a little while for me to find my footing. But really, since then, I've had a kind of refreshed and refreshed faith. So that's that a little bit about what's gotten me up to here. Yeah. So what is it about this idea of orphan believers? Like, where does that come out of you? And then who are you hoping finds that book in their hands? Yeah. Yeah. When when I say orphaned believers, I really mean any Christian that looks around at the church and wonders where Jesus is wow. these days. So for me personally, there's another layer, a little bit of a cultural orphaning where I was trying to navigate what it's like to identify as a Christian uh, in a city. And that's coming from a place where, you know, in Indiana, there was a lot of cultural Christianity. It was quite common to identify as a Christian. Didn't find a lot of spiritual formation, a lot of practices, a lot of culture or aesthetics or ideas. So then moved to Seattle and had a a flip-flop a little bit. So there, there is a certain orphaning that some of us feel either if we're in a cultural Christian context where we're looking for Jesus and and not seeing that in our church setting or our communities, or sometimes in a city if we feel like maybe we're the only Christian in mm-hmm. progressive spaces. But really the heart of what I mean is Christians today looking at the culture and the church and wondering where Jesus is. Wow. Uh, so that was some of the the reason behind writing the book. Uh, yeah. yeah, and the, the book is, I, I was one of millions of kids that grew up as either a, a younger Gen X kid or a millennial, uh, an, an older millennial mm. that grew up in the suburbs, really steeped in cultural Christianity, like light on spiritual formation. So it really yeah. is in three parts looking at end times culture and how that impacted kids, like I mentioned with my dad. Um, mm-hmm. Looking at culture wars, single issue voting, abortion, Christian nationalism, some sort of charged issues and and yeah. and what that's done for the church. And then finally looking at consumerism the suburbs, mm. whiteness, capitalism, and and those pieces. But the intention is to surface those things and pull them up to say, here's what happened. We grew up hearing messages of consumerism or growing up hearing some scary things about the world ending, but we didn't grow up with a lot of formation, mm-hmm. focus on prayer, spiritual practice. And this is part of what's led the church, I think, to being in a really difficult and broken time and asking, where's Jesus and and how do we come back around? So the book mm-hmm. brings things up. And I, what I hope is a pastoral call back to or to continue to pursue relationship with Jesus in spite of the church being in a, a, a difficult place right now. Yeah, I can't wait. That sounds really beautiful. And I'm going to read it. I know that for sure. Yeah. When 
the thing that I feel like you're literally inviting us to, obviously never reading a single page of it, is you're basically saying, look, we've been eating fast food and no one ever taught us how to garden and plant good things and learn how to reap and eat the things that are good for us and natural to us. Totally. It feels like I was actually interestingly thinking of that analogy last night when I was thinking about the church and really? how I, I asked some folks imagining the future of the church, what it could be. And somebody's meant yeah. less, less smoke machine, like less production, <laughs> yeah, uh, less like a uh, church model that feels like fast food business uh, growth and more like real, a place for real rest to really question, to lament, to pursue deep relationships. Yeah, that's good. When you think about Sarah in that first days in the city, feeling those two different lives, if you could sit her down and tell her one or two things, what would you want to tell her about what you've learned now? That's such. That's so good. I, I think I would say you're coping by hiding all of your light under a bowl. And mm. soon the weight of that will be unbearable. So, wow. so don't wait. I think I would say the thing that you're afraid of is actually being rejected or others were feeling irrelevant or not taken seriously. And that's actually about you, about mm. Sarah, <laughs> and, and, and not about serving anyone else or encouraging anyone else. So I had this image after I started sharing writing in 2018 about faith and culture of this couch. And on the couch, I saw Seth from the art book publisher and like Jane from the Alt Weekly where I used to write. Like I would see specific people and I would just imagine telling them, oh, you didn't know this, but, but I'm a Christian and I have, I've hidden that. Like I huh. imagine what would they do? It was, just, it just became clear. It was such a self-aggrandizing and fear-based posture. Seth from the publisher is not going to wake up the next morning. He hears that I'm a Christian and say, I still can't, I still can't believe it. <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. And actually the, the probably unsurprising, but lovely thing is that after I started talking about my faith, people were warm and gracious and, and lovely. So really, that, that fear was very much in my head. So I told myself, what you're afraid of is protecting your own identity, but your whole life is about loving people well and pursuing Jesus. So like, it's about fear and, and move past it. I just would have moved mm. past it so much sooner, Michael. It took me about a decade. Wow. Well, you're doing it in big ways now. Imperfectly, but I'm, I'm trying. Yeah. 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 Thank you. For sure. So when you look at kind of our Western American church... And you have a moment to say, let's reimagine this. What would it be that you'd be like, come on, everybody, let's change the way we dream about this? Yeah, that's so good. When you say that, I think of a couple of right off the bat. I think of God as the creator. I think of engaging in beauty, reclaiming a Christian aesthetic, thinking about cultivating imagination in worship and in spiritual practice and the arts in worship. Because I think that sometimes people that don't feel like they have the identity of artist or of writer or musician or creative person, don't feel like there's a place for them to be made welcome in a church setting where they can explore that or express it. But yeah. I think that's really not true. I think that any sort of creative expression can be prayerful and can be a posture of formation. And so finding church communities that can explore that and make that kind of normal would be so yeah. beautiful to bring a nuance and complexity to the Christian experience, which I think has been pretty culturally impoverished. I think about that. And then the other big thing I think about is how to encourage more spiritual formation, because just learning to play a new instrument or learning a sport or like building a muscle, it's really what prayer is. And so 
I think yeah. it's just a, a normal conversation with God, but there's so many beautiful ways and spiritual tra- discipline traditions to think about prayer, thinking about Lectio Divina or uh, the exam, spiritual direction, things that I think are becoming quite common and exciting in liturgy, but really more of that across general American evangelicalism would be such a wonderful way to not center a certain pastor, but to encourage a sort of community-based experiential, uh, sort of humble worship experience. I think that would be really beautiful. So yeah, I guess I'd say formation and kind of an exploration of creativity or the arts could be a wonderful way to layer on nuance and and meaning to the Christian experience right now, at least in America. Yeah, that's good. You're inviting us into transformation and beauty, which are two things we should never lose when it comes to the Jesus and the kingdom. That's right. A- amen. <laughs> I love that. That's really good. So this one's like a little more of a negative question, but I think still yeah. a helpful one is what's a misconception or like a thorn that you feel like has been in the side of how we've grown up in the way of Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. I think that the the first thing I would say, which might not surprise you, is the conflation of American Christianity and politics has been, yeah. I think, quite damaging to our own community of believers, as well as to how we're certainly perceived in the larger culture and wide world. And the other thing I think about is the sort of industry that's been built around church, around around leadership in church without much um, accountability, without guardrails, and using modern marketing techniques to scale church growth, as opposed to thinking about the person of Jesus who lived counterculturally, mm-hmm. who turned tables over when folks were selling things in the temple, who wept over Jerusalem. <laughs> Just thinking about the how far are we in the American evangelical church from the the person of Jesus and how he bore his life and then death is just is certainly on my mind all the time. I, so yeah. I guess those are the two kind of big buckets, I'd say, consumerism and, you know, the conflation of politics and Christianity. Yeah. And if people want to know what you really think, they'll have to get your book to hear even more. That's me. I'm marketing for you as you're like, we should it's, it's it. awesome. Yeah, that's <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay, so this one's a little uh, like diversion. I don't even think I prepped you for it. But when you look back at the last six months, what's something you've learned about yourself that surprises you? Well, I think what I've learned about myself is something I should have already known as an Enneagram 4 that has a lot of feelings. But I have, I have learned that when it comes to when it comes to connecting with people, specifically on social media, I like to feel, as Enneagrams were often do, kind of like a lot of people are connecting, but that it still feels like me, where I'm writing something that's a little bit weird or special or, or just something I could control. The truth is, something I've learned is that in the last six months specifically is that there are some things that we certainly cannot control and should not control. And that tapping into that kind of identity management thing. It's just like a gross sort of natural part of a lot of our personalities. That's in a way kind of an extension of what I learned in 2008 when I was self-organizing mm-hmm. the idea of talking about my faith. That answer is, it feels vulnerable, but I'm just learning about how I might present in a way that instead of serving a reader would be more about making sure I feel like I'm doing that authentically. Instead of trusting God to use any sort of message that any of us write online, uh, to instead being trying to manage that or or do it in a way that kind of feels authentic. So I've been thinking a lot about that. And really, Michael, I could talk about <laughs> I could talk about the wild world of Instagram for for so long, but yeah. I've learned a lot about myself and how it's so hard to show up online in a way that feels additive and of genuine focus on showing up and, and encouraging people 
and saying challenging things, but doing that in a way that feeds your soul and feels spiritually healthy. There's just such a fine line to walk before it begins to be to deplete and and can really take a lot out of us. And so I've learned a lot about taking healthy breaks and Mm -hmm. trying to be a little bit more disciplined about how I show up online. It's good. Thanks for being so vulnerable. Yeah, totally. I threw that one at you. I feel like I should have asked. I should have asked you. You're Enneagram member, or you're not into it because people oh, either don't even want to talk about it, or they're like super pumped about it. So I'm wondering. We're into it. I'm a okay. nine with a okay. wing. Okay, cool. I just did my kids. I have a 12 year old, and I thought, I wonder what his is. And of course, unsurprisingly, my husband's a five, so he's a. My kids like a four with a five wing. So we we so knew. Good. Yeah, he's the perfect merge of the two of you. <laughs> he's like the oh, perfect my. blend. Yeah, our kids are a, like, you can tell pretty early. And so we don't ever tell them like what we think they are, but it's actually helped us parent so much better. Like knowing, oh, I think this is where you connect and this is where you struggle. And I can step totally. into that and help you out of it. Wasn't until this morning when I'm like, is it, o- is it okay? Is 12 too yet? Is there some sort of like a like age? Yeah. Like a legal right. limit of Enneagram testing. But I, <laughs> hey, but Instagram, you got to be 13, maybe. That's right. Maybe we should... <laughs> We should have waited a year for sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Okay, I want to ask because I like this. Just how you write, and people need to know it. How in the world do you call out problems honestly, but still bring hope into the conversation really thoughtfully? Because there's nothing. Um, it's not platitudes. It's not false positivity. And I think that takes some maturity, but like, how do you approach that? How do you do that? I do that pretty imperfectly. I I guess all I can really say is that I try to write in the mornings and work out big feelings, say things, say things out loud and on paper. And then I let it sit for a little while. It's if you're having a intense, something, a discussion with a friend that's intense, sometimes maybe it's better to not send the email. So I, I basically don't send a lot of emails when it comes to us. So, thought, so I let it sit for a little while, sometimes up to a week. But if I keep coming back to it, if I sleep on it, if I pray on it, and it keeps coming up, then I feel usually pretty, pretty affirmed. But I really just try to do it prayerfully and to not speak off the cuff and to think, who am I talking to? And is this actually serving, serving a reader either to encourage or to say, this is wrong and, and you're not alone. Uh, mm. If you're feeling this way about if you're feeling estranged about Christian nationalism in the church, like there are other people that that feel the same way that are standing with you. So really, if I'm calling something out, I'm doing that to say, this is what's wrong, but we're doing this because we want things to get better and you're not alone. And I also sometimes think about some folks that I connect with online are don't identify as Christians. And I think just have an interesting curiosity of a kind of insider's view of what it's like to identify as an American Christian these days. And so sometimes I also think, how would this, like, what would this say to somebody that is looking in at American Christianity? If I'm calling out some celebrity pastor kind of issue or something, like, am I adding fuel to the fire so that am I giving somebody a talking point to say, and, and this is another layer of what's wrong with being an American Christian? Or am I saying, this is what we're grappling with and it really hurts. And this is how it's hard to bear that as a person that identifies as a Christian. So I'm trying to take it a layer out if I'm if I'm doing it in a way that feels in service or kind of led by the Spirit. That's beautiful. Yeah, you're not saying, let's just all burn this down. And you're not saying this is them. You're very much acknowledging you're a Christian in this environment and offering a wrestled solution to the problem. I think that's yeah. beautiful. 
I think that starts by coming back to shared and common language. A lot of people might say, a lot of us are trying to figure out what language to use if we identify as Christians. And sometimes folks might say Jesus follower. Sometimes people might not be comfortable using words at all for a little while. Like sometimes people might double down on certain words. But to me, I think it's important to land on a common language and to agree on the word Christian, even though that's tiring, because then if you identify as a Christian, do you have to say, I'm not that kind of Christian, or let me explain to you what that means? That's work. There's work involved right now in doing, but it still feels like the best word that we have to talk about our unified experience is following Jesus, which is loving Jesus well. So that's another dynamic I think about when sharing something. What language am I using? What words am I using to talk about my own experience and what I'm seeing in the church? How am I talking about evangelicalism? Am I talking about the global church or American Christianity? I'm trying to pay more attention to, to language too. Yeah, that's beautiful. So then to end, I'd love to know when you do look at what's coming or the possible future, what is something that really stirs hope inside of you when it comes to American Christianity or Amer- people in our country following Jesus? Um, I wish I could say what makes me feel hopeful is that the worst is behind us or mm. that we got through that season. It feels like it's hard. And sometimes just like with a health diagnosis, if you're diagnosed with something and you pray to get better, but sometimes you get worse. I wish I could say it's that the worst is behind us, that it's going to get better, but it, it might not. It might not get better in the American church. It might not get better for a little while. But the thing that brings me true hope and comfort is my complete conviction and belief that a remnant of people that love Jesus will always remain. We will always build something new. We will always grow. Does church renewal and reform look like starting again or were denominations splintering or fracturing. It doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't even matter. What I know for sure is that Christ left us his church and that's the, that's what we have. And that's a beautiful, precious thing that, Mm. that Christ will preserve and rebuild in some way. So the hope that I have just comes from looking back historically at various waves and seasons of church history and affirmation. The, The other thing I'd say is that I also don't have hope that in my lifetime, maybe we'll even see the kind of change we would want. And my deepest longing as an American Christian is to see renewal and reform and change. But I know that, first of all, there have always been people and will continue to be people that maybe aren't shouting a lot on Twitter or on social media, that are loving each other well, loving their communities well, and serving Jesus quietly. And those folks are just doing that work beautifully and have never stopped. And I also know that... um that even if it's not something I see in my generation, that for my kids or for the future, I know that there will be a time of renewal and and refreshment and change. So that's what's keeping me going. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. That's beautiful. Yeah. This was such a gift. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Nehemiah Collective Podcast. We are more than a podcast. We're a nonprofit that exists to help people reimagine what it looks like to follow Jesus to recognize that something's been lost in the way that we wonder and hope and seek and find. And we want to help you do that. So if you're lost and wandering, if you're seeking, hoping to find, we want to help you find the beauty in a real and personal encounter with Jesus. Please reach out and let us know how we can help you 
go on your own journey of rediscovery, renovation, and reimagination. <laughs>